Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative. Piecemeal covers topics related to eating disorders, body image, and how society may influence our thinking. Please use your discretion when listening and speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Today, we're thrilled to sit down with another guest who has both personal and professional experience to share, Maddie Duzik. Maddie is a pediatric occupational therapist who received her master's degree in occupational therapy from Spalding University in August 2018, and in May 2022, completed her post-professional doctorate at Eastern Kentucky University with a capstone on social eating perspectives for adolescents with anorexia nervosa. In the eating disorder community, Maddie is an active member of Kentucky's Eating Disorder Council and was a member of the Need a Walk Committee in Louisville, Kentucky for two years. She advocates for the role of occupational therapy in treating the eating disorder population and has given several guest lectures on adolescent mental health, spoken at state level occupational therapy conferences and taught nationwide continuing education courses for medical professionals. A native to the greater Cincinnati area, Maddie lives in Bellevue, Kentucky with her husband, four month old son and two fur babies. Welcome Maddie, we're so glad you're with us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to dive into this. One of the first professionals that I worked with a very long time ago in eating disorders when I started my career was an occupational therapist and it was a fantastic partnership. And I, I think about her frequently and the, the work that we were able to do together. So I'm excited to get to that, but to set the stage for, for the conversation about your professional interests, and goals, we'd first love to hear more about some of the personal experiences behind them. So we understand that you have your own eating disorder story like so many of us do. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. At the age of 13, I was diagnosed with anorexia nervosa as well as generalized anxiety. It took me about 10 years to reach recovery. And for me, recovery is acknowledging disordered thoughts as being disordered and not on those thoughts with disordered behaviors. And a large obstacle in reaching my recovery was this need for control, especially during like significant lifestyle changes or events. So I always felt like I was taking one step forward and then three steps back whenever there was a significant change in my life, whether that was leaving for college or living on my own during grad school or a loss of a family member, getting serious, dating somebody. And, you know, these significant roles, as they're supposed to be really exciting, valuable chapters in somebody's life, seem to be an obstacle for me. It, it highlights how, I mean, change is hard, right? Change is hard and, and change is I, uh, there's so much unknown and there's so much to yet to be revealed that it makes sense that, that you would feel a little um, out of control in those moments and, and wonder how it would all, all work out. And we know that you know eating disorders are so fierce and they're so all-consuming as an illness and they sort of come in and, and take over. I'm curious if you can give us a sense of how your eating disorder impeded your just day-to-day -day activities, the things you needed to do to get done day-to-day. -day. What did that look like? Absolutely. So like in the depth of my eating disorder, I was consumed by the eating disorder in the sense that like I could not separate my identity to the eating disorder's identity. And so it became really muddy for me to recognize what values and beliefs were important to Maddie as a person 
versus what values and beliefs were important to the disease as the eating disorder. And this really impacted my day-to-day -day life and the things that I made as priorities. So there was a huge shift. I was prioritizing exercise and these food rituals and routines, which deprived me of the opportunities um, that I had to be, you know, a student, an employee, a daughter, a sister, a girlfriend. And I just had very little energy toward everyday tasks because I was giving all of my efforts toward the values and beliefs of the eating disorder rather than the things that were important to Maddie, the person. So I just remember like it taking extensive amounts of time to do little things such as motivating myself to shower, motivating myself to get dressed. And I would go through so many different pairs of pants or shirts just because I was constantly in a fog and just could not allow myself to work my way out of the eating disorder. And I really isolated myself from that. So there was just a significant tug away from my day-to-day -day life and things that used to be really important to me. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense and, and sounds so familiar in the stories we hear about how much time and space and energy the eating disorder consumes. And, and I think that's one of the beautiful things of, of treatment and recovery is that treatment certainly takes an enormous amount of time or can take an enormous amount of time, but uh, recovery helps reclaim some of that time and space to be to be you, uh, to be who we are. So we know that it's, you know, we know that recovery and, and treatment are, have lots of benefits uh, in many aspects and not all aspects of a person's life. How, how did that play out for you? Tell us a little bit about how recovery changed your life. I think in order to recognize how recovery changed my life, I have to think about like the darkest moments in my eating disorder. And I just remember there were so many moments where I had like tossed myself into like, it was okay if I was not going to meet the goals and the aspirations that were important to Maddie, the person. I had convinced myself that, you know, being able to exercise every day was more important than having a family of my own one day or having a career that I was working toward. And that made me just so sad to the point where I not only became anxious, but also depressed. And I think in those moments that really woke me up and made me realize like, this is not where I wanted to be. And I needed to begin to separate myself from my eating disorder. And so, you know, recovery has allowed me to rediscover my true self apart from the eating disorder and everything that comes with it from the little moments, such as spending weekends on the lake or reading to more of the meaningful roles, becoming an occupational therapist, getting my doctorate degree, marrying the love of my life, and recently becoming a mom. And it has just been so fulfilling. And I just remember of those dark days and I'm like, man, like life is so much more than just like those numbers on a scale or those miles ran in a day. There's just so much more beauty to be discovered outside of the eating disorder. 
looking to you to learn many of those wonderful things. That is so, so amazing. Uh, that just, it sounds beautiful. And we, we do see so much of that, right? The eating stores just take so much from people again and again and again and again. And it, it really, we know that, you know, eating store treatment requires and people need, need professional care, professional support. Tell us about the role of occupational therapy. What role can occupational therapists play in the treatment and recovery process? I think it's a fascinating part that's not, not as widespread as, as it could be, but really has such unique, interesting aspects based on the learning that you do as an occupational therapist to really helping people develop a whole new skill set. It's just a beautiful, a beautiful process. So tell us a little bit about the role that OTs play. Absolutely. So briefly connecting it to my my personal journey, I always considered treatment to be a journey because it's never linear. There's so many curves, there's so many steps forward and then backwards. And during my stay at in an acute setting, it was very critical for my recovery as it was the foundation of my healing, both physically and emotionally. So in the acute phase, your role or your occupation is to heal, whether that is through restoring your weight or finding coping skills to help you with those disordered thoughts. There is significant value in just having that single role, which is to recover. However, I think where it starts to get a little complex is when a patient transitions from the acute phase and is then reintegrated back into the community. Suddenly this individual is asked to take on all their roles prior to their acute care, whether that is being a student, an employee, an athlete, a parent, a friend, they're given all these new responsibilities with trying to maintain this weight and all the emotions, the good and the bad that come with it. And it's exhausting. And when someone is tired an eating disorder takes full advantage and it's a slippery slope, you know, that eating disorder is indicative and manipulative and will take any opportunity to try to re-emerge. So I think that's where there is a, a gap in treatment per se. You know, eating disorders have been labeled this revolving door complex or this chronic disease because they received this healing process during the acute phase. But then, then what is, I guess, the, the next question? And it due to finances, due to insurance, due to family support, you name it, there's not really a what's next for the individual. Some go to a day program, some go to outpatient, some go to a residential program, some don't do anything. And what it comes down to is that reintegration back into the community. And I think there's an element that's lost in that. And occupational therapy, um, the definition is the therapeutic use of everyday life occupations with person groups or populations in order to support a person's performance and participation in those occupations that are meaningful. And for my personal experience, I feel like that's what was missing in my treatment journey. And so I'm really passionate about educating and advocating to others 
to give them that opportunity. So maybe their journey is not as long as mine. It sounds like you're really describing sort of recovery in real life. Like how do you get the skills you need and practice them and be able to deploy them in all the facets of your life. I was talking with somebody earlier today about a, a, that more acute phase of treatment is almost like the triage, like, okay, you have, you have to stop the bleeding and then move you on. And we wouldn't just like stop somebody's bleeding and like leave them with a tourniquet on or something. That was terrible medical terminology use, but you get what I'm, where I'm going with that. That like, we wouldn't just end there we would then make sure that they had, you know, their wound sutured and not get infected and make sure that any movement of their arm was monitored. We do all these things, right, to make sure that they were that they could use that arm as well as possible. And it does seem like in sometimes in, in many people, depending on where you live, there's less or more continuum of care for eating sort of treatment available. Uh, it certainly doesn't, you know, recovery doesn't end with the like, okay, you walk out the door of a treatment center and it's all better. It's, it's essential oftentimes for people to have that door to go in and out of, uh, but certain things aren't all better when you, when you leave and recovery needs to really root where people live and where they're engaged in, in all of those, as you're saying, the occupational domains of their life. And we know that that is, you know, that's, as you explain it, sort of where um, your passion shows up. In your experience, how often are eating disorders discussed in the occupational therapy community? I would say there's very limited discussion or exposure for this population. You know, over the past decade, I would say there's been a significant growth in defining occupational therapy's role in the field of mental health, but there's still a lot of limitation in understanding specific populations, such as the eating disorder population especially in the outpatient setting. I'm, I've connected with uh, several occupational therapists who work with this population and the majority of them are in that inpatient setting. Now, why this is, I'm not entirely sure. I think there's such a wide spectrum for occupational therapy. It's such an umbrella term that I think it can be a little intimidating and a little unclear to some professionals and some providers like, okay, uh, how, how does this work with current eating disorder care? Yeah, that makes, that makes sense that there's probably also that, you know, who does what and where and what system has which providers available. And, you know, I remember when I first worked with an occupational therapist back in the, the early days of my career it was because there was, that was the only place there was a kitchen in the hospital was in the OT suite. Is the OTs were working with people on reintegrating cooking skills in their life. And so we said, you know, hey, could we use the kitchen? Could you work with us to use the kitchen and helping doing cooking classes with our people with eating disorders? And oh, you also have like a dining area that's not in the main hospital cafeteria. Could we use that too to cook a meal and eat it? And so it was really this great sort of confluence of events that led us to say, yeah, we should really do this. And boy, that occupational therapist had amazing skills in helping people deploy new learnings or remembered learnings in a kitchen setting. So it was a, I thought it was awesome. It was, yeah, it was really great. But but I think you're, you're right that like occupational therapy and eating stores aren't often considered together. From a OT perspective, anything else you'd add there on like why, like what would get in the way of an occupational therapist being involved, assuming there, like there is one somewhere accessible and maybe with some training, but thoughts you have about, you know, what stands in the way? 
I think taking that initiative and almost taking that leap, if you will, occupational therapists, I think are hesitant because they don't want to step on other providers' toes. We don't want to come off like we're trying to implement a skill better than somebody else. And on the flip side, I don't think other providers think to reach out for us because we're a little more reserved because again, we don't want to step on people's toes. And so there's just a lack of communication, I think, if you will. And so that's kind of where my passion is coming in is to advocate and educate both parties. Like, hey, there is this gap in treatment and this great opportunity for occupational therapists to support you and become an additional resource in what you're doing. So not necessarily taking your role, but almost adding more skills and having more of an interdisciplinary approach to treatment. So I, I think it's that lack of communication, not even a miscommunication, but just <laughs> getting that communication started. Really appreciate what you're bringing to the conversation. And we, we want to hear more about your recent doctoral capstone. We know that this, your capstone was on this topic. So tell us about that project. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to focus on an age group that was really close to my heart, which are adolescents. Um, I feel like adolescents as an age group are often misunderstood. And in addition, they are so vulnerable to mental health impairments. Um, they are having radical physical and emotional changes in their life. And they really connect or strive to develop to be ex accepted by peers, which can either be a really good thing or it can be a really toxic thing, if you will, for an adolescent's mental well-being. So to better understand one of the adolescents' meaningful occupations, I wanted to learn more about their social eating, especially for adolescents who have been diagnosed with anorexia nervosa. So when I think of social eating, I think of someone eating in a social setting or a social environment. And for adolescents, a common social environment is the school cafeteria. So I selected participants between the ages of 12 years old and 16 years old that were um, currently admitted into an inpatient treatment facility. And I just had one-on-one -on -one conversations with them, asking them about um, social eating and the good, the bad, and the ugly, and to hear their experiences. And after interviewing all my participants, I found common patterns that overlapped between all those participants to come up with a summary, if you will, of social eating perspective for adolescents with anorexia nervosa. That's so cool. How are the, sometimes people are reluctant to involve adolescents or to, to, to engage with adolescents because they're, they're, for whatever reason, how did you find the actual engaging with the adolescents around these topics? Were they reluctant? Were they excited? Were they like, well, I don't want to talk to you about my social eating. How, how were they? How did they present? So I will say I had a huge help. So the occupational therapist at the inpatient setting has just like this unbelievable relationship with his patients. <laughs> and so he kind of did the introduction between me and the patients. And it almost kind of gave them that sense of trust to really have like a genuine, authentic conversation with me. 
And so I have to say, I, I definitely had a crutch, if you will. <laughs> so hats off to that, that therapist for sure. That's awesome. It's always good to have, you know, a, a supporter there. <laughs> what did your participants identify when they were, when they were talking to you, because you had this great entry with them, what did they identify as challenges when eating with others? Like give us a sense of what it was, what was particularly hard around social eating. Just their observations, um, eating in a school cafeteria. So not only the observations that they made with the people that sat at their tables, but just the people surrounding them. They made frequent comments about how they would look and see what other people were eating. They were also comparing what was on their tray versus what was on somebody else's tray. And just a frequent pattern that I saw between all participants was just negative associations between the social eating environment and body image and diet. So I think with how central social media is, is particularly for this age group, it is increasing or heightening conversations about diet talk and body image and all these different things. And it's really hard for adolescents with anorexia nervosa or other eating disorders to get away from those, those topics. Like they just kind of have to deal with them and they don't know how. So tell us about what your participants identified as as challenges when eating with others and, and what was particularly hard about it. I imagine, you know, we know that social media is so present. I think a lot about that. How do we support adolescents there? And was that a factor that you found was important? Yeah, absolutely. Common patterns between participants were the negative effects of social peer pressures. And a lot of those pressures came from social media aspects. So influencers, surrounding like diets or diet plans or body image or exercise plans often became conversations during mealtimes. And these adolescents just can't escape those conversations with the risk of being isolated by their peers. And so I think they're placed into a hard place and a, a wall, if you will, because they're either sacrificing that peer acceptance or they're sacrificing that mental well-being and recovery from eating disorders. So one of the participants told me the story and just like really stuck with me that she had been discharged from an inpatient treatment program. It was her first week back. She had this diet plan um, that her and her dietitian worked on together for lunch during the school day. And one of her peers made a comment like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're eating all of that. And she said, just, she described it as feeling shameful and with all this guilt and just felt bad about herself. And she, she was honest and said the next day, like I did not follow my, my meal plan and I didn't follow it after that. And Three weeks later, she was back in the inpatient program. And so, you know, it's like moments like those where how can we as medical providers be a better support or better resource during those 
real times for these adolescents. Absolutely. It speaks to what we were talking about earlier. How do you, you know, not just have people after they leave an, an intensive treatment setting sort of off unprepared to do so many things. There's only, only so much we can do in an intensive treatment setting to get somebody ready for the next level of care, but it does speak to that ongoing sort of surrounding folks with a, with a team of people who can help uh, help them to manage and navigate, that there's so much to navigate. I, and, and right, once you start down that, whether it's a, a live interaction with a peer or a social media interaction with an influencer or a peer, that it's just so easy, as your story illustrates, to just slide right down, you know, back down into that rabbit hole of not good stuff the eating disorder has to say. So super powerful story. What what recommendations do you have for people to better support adolescents with eating disorders while they're eating in, in addition to maybe not having peers focus on that, which would be a magic thing to have to have happen, but not easy. But what tips do you have uh, that might be helpful for listeners trying to support a client or support a loved one with an eating disorder at mealtimes? Absolutely. The first thing that comes to mind is giving the adolescent some sort, some sense of autonomy or some sense of control. I feel like eating disorders are very influenced by control, if you will. And so that is often taken away a lot of times for these adolescents during the treatment process. And so even little things such as um, giving them the choice of going to lunch A or lunch B, if they can rewire their, or if they can do so in their school schedule or sitting outside or sitting inside the cafeteria, listening or having one earbud in listening to music or, you know, having a sketch pad in front of them while they're eating, just giving them those little snippets of control to again, allow them to anchor themselves and be able to separate themselves from the eating disorder. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. And the second one is having this occupation-based experience or practice, if you will. So I think a lot of my adolescents are caught off guard with some of the comments that peers make. So the more I can prepare them, the more they're able to use those coping skills that they've learned in the acute care setting. So let me give you an example. One of my adolescents, she was gone for six months receiving treatment, and she was very nervous about returning to school and having her peers and teachers ask her about her extended absence. And so rather than just kind of like, saying good luck with it. I role-played, if you will, and had different ways that maybe peers or teachers would approach her and ask her, like, where have you been? You look like you've gained weight or like, you know, just different ways that couldn't potentially trigger her. And together we worked on comments or strategies that she could work past if those scenarios were to happen. So something she quickly identified was that she has a very dry sense of humor and she is a little sarcastic and she took that as one of her strengths and she used that to come up with these strategies and responses 
to some of the role play scenarios. And it gave her such a level of like confidence and again, control in the situation that she said that she rocked that first day back to school, that people did approach her and say things that if she wasn't prepared for it, she said she could have totally seen that it had been triggering and had escalated, but rather she already had a plan. She implemented that plan. It was something that she was confident about because it highlighted her strengths as a person rather than an eating disorder. And so that's something that as an occupational therapist that I really highlight with these adolescents. That's spectacular. It really is. I'm thinking, I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about all the great and really funny and sarcastic things she might say about where she's been for six months. I was like creating all like, oh, she could say that or that. Oh yeah. She was like, I was in the moon and then like, just like walk away. Okay. Whatever. Like something that totally not, would not work for me at all, but like it was what she felt most comfortable with. And I was like, you go girl. Like, <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it really is. It speaks to how personalized it needs to be and how what works for one person might not work for another person. And I also, like, as you were talking about, I was thinking one of just a reflection, like, wouldn't it be nice or won't it be nice when we get to the point as a society where when somebody has to be gone for six months for eating disorder treatment, when they come back, they say, yeah, I went to eating disorder treatment because I was really sick and now I'm back and I'm doing pretty well. And here's how you could support me. That's a lot for an adolescent to say, it's a lot for our society to hear, right? That's why it's hard to say because there's all this sort of stigma and secrecy and still associated shame with behavioral health conditions, which is so unfortunate that, that I hope that we get to a place where, you know, if that young person had been in a, a, a car accident and had to be in a rehab setting for six months, that they would come back to like the band playing and signs and welcome back. Absolutely. Like a parade. Absolutely. Well, and just like on a smaller scale, like me being on maternity leave for 12 weeks, there was no stigma to that. It was like, a that's what you do after you have a baby. And, you know, returning to work with like a welcome back banner and how can we support you as a new mom and a working professional? You're absolutely right. Like those resources just are, are not a thing for adolescents or any age group that is coming back from mental health services. Yeah. I hope we all get to see that evolve and see that, that go differently. But speaking of evolve, so uh, looking towards sort of continued research or continued conversation about occupational therapy and eating disorders, what would you identify as like, you'd really like to see discussed or studied in the occupational domain related to eating disorders? What do you want to happen next? I would love for more of a concrete definition of OT's role in treating eating disorders to kind of come to terms and for providers and patients alike just to be familiar with occupational therapy and as a resource, an additional resource, not something to take away from the great care that's already available. And then to piggyback that, what are the, the outcomes both short-term and long-term for adolescents who complete maybe an outpatient occupational therapy treatment plan so that we can continue to advocate for occupational therapists to help with this population and so that we can provide more evidence-based concrete knowledge for these interdisciplinary teams and uh, collaborations. 
I love it. That's the the collaboration among interdisciplinary teams is is a beautiful thing, and it really works so well when we have the sometimes it feels like luxury of having that, but it it should be a necessity. I agree. Well, Maddie, thanks so much for spending time with us today, for sharing your personal story, for sharing your professional passion. We really appreciate hearing all about it. Yes, thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode of Teasmeal, please subscribe, rate, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Learn more about us at emilyprogram.com and veritascollaborative.com or search Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative on social media. Peace Meal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening.